Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here, Cultural Studies Podcast, and as always you can follow my adventures such as they are on tobymiller.org. And I'm here today with a new friend, in the sense that we met, I don't know, three and a half minutes ago. <laughs> it was Joseph, a good three minutes. <laughs> it was a very, yes, the last half minute was problematic, but the first three were fine. Uh, Josephine Angelini, noted author. I'm going to call you Josie, is that all right? That's fine, is thank that you. Fine? Mm-hmm. And Tell us, Josie, what you're up to here and now. You just mentioned Sweden to me, and I'd love to hear you talk about that. I was just in Sweden um, for Litteralund, which is um, a government-run program that introduces all students, um, we'd call them sophomores, they're about 15 years old. Um, It introduces all students to some form of culture. And the reason why they had me out there was, they they work a lot with middle grade and children authors as well. But the reason they had me out there to speak to the teens is because my book is based on the Iliad. My series of books are based on the Iliad. And um, they wanted me to um, talk to the students about pop culture ends to classical work. Oh, how interesting. And how, you know, basically I just went and talked to them about how stories are universal and they're in every part of your life even if you don't know. Uh, in the they're video in the games, place, they're in video games, video they're games in tennis movies, commentary. they're in commercials. They're in commercials. Aren't it's they? Yeah, yeah, there's you know a guy's late. He missed the bus. He's sweating. He should have used a better deodorant. You know, it's like no, seriously, it's in every single part of your life. And stories are used to manipulate you sometimes. They're also there to teach. They're also there to teach you. So I basically went and talked to the students. Um, it was about 400 students at a time for three days about pop culture and about how even if it's an old dusty story like the Iliad it still applies so and what was the reception like I mean these folks are obviously not English as a first language right. uh, they may may not have heard of the Iliad yeah um, they a lot of them I had to introduce them to everybody knows the Trojan War so that was one thing I said. You've heard of Helen, the face that launched a thousand ships. Trojan. I mean, this has been around for three and a half thousand years. So there's something to that story. You yeah. know, there's there's something that's. It's always going to apply to the human way of thinking mm-hmm. in some way. Sure. Um, so it, it was it was fantastic. Actually, they spoke better English than I did. <laughs> like a lot of them, <laughs> it was amazing. I kept asking people, you know, do you need me to slow down? Am I going too fast? And they were like, no. <laughs> Use bigger words. We thought you were a writer. You're supposed to be smart. It was actually, it was very, very eye-opening. And was your work available in Swedish, or had they read it in English? Yeah, um, my book is out in Sweden. It's called um, Heliana, out in Sweden. And um, yeah, so the, it, the book is out, and I had some uh, some fans of the book that were there as well. But mostly, it was just talking to the kids in general about why reading is still relevant and why it's still important and how if you read a book as opposed to going to see the movie, that story gets to be yours first. Like you get to create that story in your mind without anybody telling you what it looks like or who this character is supposed to be or what this city looks like. When you read a book, it gets to be your own story first. And they really responded to that. That's interesting. Tell us some more about that. Why it gets to be your own story first when you read a book as opposed to play a video game. Right. Right. Well, I, don't get me wrong. I love video games and I love movies. I think that they're another art form, and uh, both of them, especially some video games like Skyrim, st- stuff that's out there right now is such a complicated plot. I mean, it's really incredible storytelling. But the reason why I think that books get to be much more personal because it all happens inside of your head is like one of the things about my book um, here in the U.S. I didn't want them to show Helen's face because I didn't want young women to be told this is what the most beautiful woman in the world looks like. I want you to imagine that. I want you to think for yourself what is beauty and come up to that. Make her face up for yourself and figure out for yourself what you think is beautiful, not what I tell you is beautiful. So for me, um, I think that when you read a book first as opposed to going to see the movie, you get to create these characters in your head for yourself. You're an active part of the story. You're not just passively watching it. And so I think that it teaches us not only um, why stories are a part of our everyday lives, but when you actually read a book as opposed to going to see a movie or playing a video game, you're an active participant in the storyteller. It becomes your story. You've got to do lots of work of your own. For sure. But it's fun work. It's your imagination. It's like you get to come up with the perfect boy or the perfect girl in your head. Mm-hmm. And nobody, n- nobody has the right to tell you that's wrong. 
Can we pursue that topic for a moment mm -hmm. of not wanting to describe or show Helen's face to young women? Yeah. Tell us about that in terms of maybe the feminist issues that are associated automatically with Helen of Troy right. because of that famous question. Right. Well, for me, one of the reasons I was so attracted to this story to begin with, apart from the fact that you know Homer is one of the masters of storytelling, um, was the idea that there's this woman who is so beautiful that it started a war. Like what? That's one of the craziest things I've ever heard of. Like how, why is beauty something that everybody wants to possess and wants to own? And the, my character, my Helen, she goes through a journey of really claiming herself through the process of the three books. It's about her realizing who she is in the first book, her heritage, where she comes from, and sort of the burden that's placed on her because of that. And then it's a process of claiming her power through the rest of the books and realizing that she is the most powerful person in this story, because it's her story. And she rises to that occasion. And instead of allowing herself to be a pawn of the fates, she figures something out for herself. Mm. Um, so for me, it was, I think it's a, it's a universal story in that instead of just allowing Helen of Troy to be that passive. The object around whom men's desire is exercised. Exactly. And their rivalry and their battle. I, I made it her fight. Made I made it her fight. struggle. Yeah. Now, speaking of the three books, one is out and is a bestseller, and one, we're speaking now towards the beginning of May 2012. People will be listening to this for generations, of course. <laughs> of course they will. Of Long course. Long after your third book has been translated into various other indigenous Nordic languages. <laughs> but the second volume in the trilogy is about to come out, isn't it, at the end of this month, I think. It is here in the U.S. It's already out in Germany, and oh, I just—I actually found out yesterday that among um, hit the bestsellers list in Germany, and oh, it's doing really well. Yes, I, Suzanne Collins is the only one that has me edged out still, <laughs> but um, I, I will take a back seat to her. I think her, her books are of brilliant. WTF, we say YGG. YGG. You, you go, comma girl. You go, girl. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, for sure. Works a bit better with your accent. <laughs> That's fantastic. So it's already out in Germany, Germany. and is really going hit the bestsellers list. So we'll see. Um, hopefully, it'll hit here too. Um, markets are strange. It's it's one of those weird things. It's um, the first book is a bestseller in the UK, in Italy, in Germany, and it's. Uh, I'm very very fortunate that I've had this sort of worldwide appeal. But I think that that just speaks to the fact that the subject matter is something that everybody already knows. Everybody knows the Trojan War. We've all heard about the Trojan yeah. Wars. This is something that people all over the world can relate to no matter what language it's in. And also, it's, as you say, it's a great story. He was a wonderful storyteller. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's given rise to so many metaphors, hasn't it? Oh, like the Trojan sure. Horse, for example. Achilles' heel, Trojan Achilles Horse, heel. and the face that launched a thousand ships. I mean, you name it. There's there's On so the many. Road. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of in our cultural thought. But you very much updated the story. Very much. Well, I had to. We don't go to war over kidnapped queens anymore. Like, there, there's just, we just don't do that. We don't fight 10-year wars to get back one person. It doesn't fit into our modern consciousness. Um, so I had to come up with a construct using history. I still use the four uh, ancient houses that were there in Rome, the House of Thebes, the House of Atreus. The house, you know, so there are all these different families that were vying for power back then. And so I keep that alive, and I add a little bit of the Oresteia, mm -hmm. which is the story of the Furies. And... Um, it's about revenge killing and cycles that happen, you know, every generation you have to kill to pay for the last generation, which doesn't make sense, you know. Um, so I, I sort of worked that into the story so that I could keep this conflict going, uh, but, you know, on this sub-level of the world. So. Now, I've, I've read the, some of the promotional materials for the second book. Uh, obviously, I haven't read it. I can't speak German. But, <laughs> I didn't even know it was out in Germany. <laughs> yeah. But presumably, she is starting out in this second one suddenly alone, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's part of what she's confronting. Well, the second book is her trip through the underworld. In uh, classic Greek storytelling and classic Greek myth mythology, um, the major heroes like Hercules and Perseus, they all go through a period where they have to travel through the underworld. Yeah. Like in Hercules, with Hercules as part of his 12 trials for having gone mad and murdered his family. Oh, kin killing is huge in my book too because it's huge in Greek mythology. It happens over and over in your storytelling. Um, and madness as well. It's a huge plot device in Greek. So it comes up in my book. If it, if it happened in the Greek stories, it's going to happen in my books. But the second book is centered around Helen and she has a, a 
a task to accomplish in the underworld and she has no idea how to go about it. So she's journeying through the underworld very much alone, very much struggling with this hellscape um, that's constantly changing on her. It's every time she descends into the underworld, it's, it's a different form of hell. And I was sort of working with the idea that we create our own hell, that it's our state of mind that puts us in certain places in our lives. And Helen's very much going through that in the second book. One of the, I don't want you to give away any secrets, obviously, although some of the secrets are fairly well known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that strikes me about quite a lot of novels I read, and also lots of people I meet, is that there are some kinds of gendered difference that are not universal about acknowledging ignorance, about acknowledging not knowing, mm -hmm. um, and almost making a virtue of it, that women often seem so much better at acknowledging <laughs> lack of competence, and as a consequence, suddenly can become competent very quickly. Well, Whereas men often, it's, it's the thing about yeah, the man yeah, yeah. not being able to say, excuse me, where's the nearest, and the woman saying, oh, get out of it, finding it very easy to say, I don't know where I am, I'm lost. Right, right. right. That kind of couple. But it, I, I don't think that that's inborn. I think, I think that that's something that society has put on us. I think that men have been told they're supposed to know where they're going, and women have been told it's okay to ask. And I think... I, I don't think that it's a natural thing inside either men or women. I mean, I could be wrong. There could be some study that comes out saying, no, it actually makes men nauseous when they have to say that they're wrong. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, there might be a physiological reason for it, but I think it's much more of a societal thing where um, men are told you're not worth as much if you say you don't know, and women are told it's okay to say you don't know. You'll learn. I wanted to ask you about that in the, in the context of teen fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, adult fiction, I mean, yours is a crossover success, uh, and fiction oriented at girls versus boys, because almost the first thing mm. you said to me was that you were very concerned about your female reader. Yeah, I am. I think because I write for myself. I know that's terrible, but I really do. Mm -hmm. I write stories that I want to read, and I've always gravitated towards things that had a feminist bent to them. Mm. Um, mm like Marion Zimmer Bradley in The Mists of Avalon. I read that when I was 13 and it really changed the way that I saw the world and it changed the way I saw myself as a woman. For me personally, I grew up in a family with six sisters. So I've been surrounded by women my whole life and the idea of what it is to be a woman in the world is something that's really fascinated me because I've watched my sisters and they all, they've all taken such different paths in their lives. And obviously, you know, I think a lot about my family and I think a lot about the people in my life that I love. And um, I have always had a lot of women in my life, a lot of female friends, um, my big sisters. I have nieces now that I worry about constantly, how they see themselves in the world, how they're treated in the world. So for me, the issue of speaking to young women is, is important. It's not that I discount men, not at all. I love my husband very much. <laughs> But for me, when you can really speak to a young woman and maybe influence how she feels about herself in the world and at least give her some sort of role model of you know, a competent, strong woman, um, I think that that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing mm. anyway. And it's something that I'm, I strive for. Now, I think I read on your website, which is terrific, by the way. Can you give people the address? Oh, it's www.josephineangelini.com. It's, it's really well put together. <laughs> I think I read on there that you're the youngest. Is that right? I am the youngest, yeah. So what sorts of things did they trundle off and do, your eldest? And they're bigger, too. They're taller or something. Oh, yeah. They're, they're all bigger than me. They're all yeah, they really are. They're all very strong. Um, intelligent, like well-spoken. I really do have an, a, a pretty incredible family. Mm. But they do all kinds of things. Arts, medicine, um, they, a lot of them are work in holistic healing. Mm -hmm. A lot of my sisters, my sister Margaret's an organist and she's also a professor and she teaches at Stonehill College, teaches music. and It's just, it's crazy the, uh, the amount of different things. Amazing that, variety. Yeah, variety. and the way that they've you know, some of them travel constantly for work, some of them don't, some of them stay at home, some of them, it's just all the different choices that they've made really astounds me. And when you were growing up, being a little younger and not as Amazonian, right. it seems to have been quite relevant from what you said inside. <laughs> it really is. And I'm sure it is. You're, you're shorter and younger anyway, but then they're just getting, getting bigger and bigger, right? <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, 
what were the things that do you think helped to influence to turn you towards becoming a novelist or becoming a storyteller, should we say? Probably watching all the different characters in my life. Um, having so many personalities that I needed to relate to, you know, because there was very little time in between all eight of us. There's only 11 years. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, that's, wow. So we all grew up. Your mom was busy. My mother was a very busy woman. (laughs) Very busy. And she still is. I mean, she hasn't sat down in 50 years, I don't think. (laughs) So, um, yeah, for me, it was always, um, I was always learning how to negotiate with my family, you know, how do you fit in? How do you communicate to each and every person? And just so many characters in my family. There's just no way for me to to not want to chronicle that. Wow, so stories became very important. So I, I'm wanting to get a little bit of history in here. I don't want you to go any more personally into detail than yeah. you wish, obviously, when you're comfortable with it. But, uh-huh. So you're growing up in Connecticut, is that right? Massachusetts. In Massachusetts. Close, close. Close, <laughs> close, but wrong state. So you're in Massachusetts which is a very vibrant state with all kinds of different bits of it with very different worldviews. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of a place like Northampton uh, as opposed to Cambridge, uh, right. so some of those differences. So which bit of Massachusetts? Well, I'm from a very small town called Ashland. Um, it's middle class, working, working class families, um, a very tight-knit community. Um, I still am in touch with people that I've known since the first grade. Wow. So it, it really is a a small, tight-knit community. My sisters, a lot of my sisters, still live very close to my parents. They live within like a 15-minute radius. I grew up in a very, actually, it's a really lovely town with some wonderful people. I I don't just have these people in my life like as a default. You know, I still have friends from first grade because they're pretty incredible people. They're special people. So um, did you, when high school finishes, know I want to be a writer and you leave Ashland no. or what happened? No, I knew I wanted to get the heck out of Massachusetts. So I, I applied to a couple of colleges in New York City because I wanted to live in a big city. I just knew that that was, and NYU gave me the biggest scholarship. So that's where I went. Oh, well, I was <laughs> and, at NYU for 11 years. Oh, really? Yeah. I was at Tisch. So was I. Really? I, I, I was in the classical theater track. So I did, uh-huh. I did, I worked with Louis Sheeter. He uh-huh. was my director for a few years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when did you, when did you go there? Um, till 97. It was 90, wait a minute. Yeah, I graduated in 97. Uh, we must have been in the elevator at the same time because I went there and I was there from 1993 to 2004. Must have been, must have been. 721 Broadway. Oh, for sure. I wasn't in that building very much, but. No, because you guys were out with the theater company. I worked at Circle in the Square Theater for a few Did years. Did you? How was that? It was pretty incredible. It was a it was an amazing learning experience, and I auditioned in, and that was how I got my scholarship. I got the Tisch scholarship. Yeah. So um, I was a performer while I was there, and then you know, sort of towards the end of it, by my senior year, I started going. And Louis, my director, he was like, mm. you know, Josie, you think like a writer, and I was like, yeah, I know, I do. <laughs> And it was really one of those things where I got to this point where it was easy for me to get up on stage, but I was terrified of showing anyone my writing. So I kept it to myself for years. Like, I just didn't, I didn't know. It, and it's very strange because when you get up on stage, you're playing a character and it's fine because you're hiding behind that or sure. you're, you know, it's somebody else's And you words. haven't chosen the words. Right, exactly. But giving somebody something that you've written, it was just so intensely personal. I didn't know how to... I didn't know how to do it, and it took me a long time to get to the point where I was ready to do that. Wow, so. that's amazing. So, suddenly you decide, talking to your mentor, that maybe he's right, maybe you're right, maybe you no, should no, get no. over your fears, or what happens next? No, I, it was just avoidance for years. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to move to Los Angeles and see what happens, and I was writing with a sketch comedy group, and so I was writing and performing, well, so sort of straddling, a little bit, but it was mostly like... I would sort of put my sketch forward and be like, oh, but your sketch is way better. And it was. You know, I was working with some talented people, so I was like, your sketch is way better. Let's do that one instead. <laughs> I was like, I'll write with someone. I won't really write alone. And, I mean, it was a learning process for me. Um, and then I met my husband, and he's a screenwriter, and he literally put a laptop on my lap, and he said, start writing now. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> now, now, tell us his name. Albert. Um, his name is Juan Alberto Leon. Juan Alberto Leon, mm-hmm. and he, how did you meet? You didn't meet over a steaming laptop. 
No, we met um, through a friend, a mutual friend from NYU, actually. Oh, wonderful. So. so he was out here already. Mm-hmm. You and you, well, you'd come out here mm-hmm. for acting, performing. The acting. Whatever. I didn't know what I was really. I had like in the back of my mind was I wanted to write screenplays, but I didn't want to say I wanted to write screenplays because. Because like everybody arrives in Los Angeles. Everybody comes to Los Angeles <laughs> saying, I want to be a screenwriter. And I was like, God, do I really want to be that person? <laughs> like, but I did. I came out here kind of hoping that that's where the transition would be. And I, I wrote screenplays for a few years. I didn't sell anything, but there was some interest. And I learned a lot about story structure. Nothing's ever wasted. It's so weird. It's like everything that I learned from theater, I brought directly to this story. And everything that I learned in screenwriting was my structure for writing these novels. So it, it's just this, it's just weird. Like, <laughs> how you, sometimes it takes you a couple of years to catch up with your life, but <laughs> eventually you do, and that's, sure. you know, you know you've caught up with your life when people start going, I like it. Like, <laughs> wow, we'll publish that. <laughs> so you and he, you're sitting at opposite ends of some room in some building, mm-hmm. trying to write, or writing these screenplays. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? When, I mean, I think I read somewhere again, or maybe I heard you say this in an interview, that at some point he's the one who turns you on to the Iliad as a source. Is that right? Is well, that right? It, it, it sort of, it was, it was, um, I've written like six screenplays and it's not that, well, the first ones were bad and, the, and I got better and better with everyone. Mm-hmm. But I write mainly about women and um, it's kind of hard to sell a screenplay that's, Unless you attach a star, it's really hard to... And there aren't that many women stars. It's kind of true. And you're only allowed to be a certain size, exactly. shape, and age. Exactly. So for me, it, I was sort of missing a lot because there was no market for what I was writing. And my husband said, Josie, look at your bookshelf. You read books that have strong female protagonists. Why don't you write a book? And I was like, oh, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. So I came up with an idea, and I pitched it to him, and it was way too confusing. And he said, no, you can't write that for your first book. So I'm bawling. And he's like, Josie, start with what you know. And what I studied in college were the classics. So I I saw the Iliad sitting next to Romeo and Juliet. And I went, how come no one's tried to tell the story of the Iliad in in a modern-day setting from Helen of Troy's point of view? And he went, that's your story. Because people are doing it with Romeo and Juliet every five minutes. And that's why I put those two ideas together, and I was like, this is another great love story, Helen in Paris, except it's never seen as a great love story because so many horrible things happen because of it. And Typical Greek. I mean, it's got to be depressing somehow if it's going to be Greek. So for me, it was just just a natural progression. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm the one that's meant to do that then. Like, if you can't find somebody that's done it already, maybe you're the one that's meant to do it. (laughs) It's very interesting at this moment of incredible trauma in contemporary Greece, such horror. We've just seen this very traumatic but very revelatory election on the weekend where nobody is even close to being able to form a government. Uh, This is a a modern-day Greek drama, and many of the... People here, many people here in the United States think of Greece as a cradle of what they imagine in this country to be Judeo-Christian civilization. And they think that in terms of philosophy, poetry, writing in general, and democracy, democracy. we owe all of this to the Greeks. Well, there's certainly some truth in that, but it's also interesting that, as you've alluded to, in this thing called Greek tragedy, people are absolutely bastards to one another and they kill one another and there are dreadful wars and, and there's awful things happen and, and jealousy there's and slavery and absolute monstrosity yeah. so <laughs> uh, yeah. this great cradle of western civilization who knows whether out of the, the dreadful trauma that Greeks are going through right. today we may get some interesting pointers to them about our future uh, but, but I certainly hope so for their the, sake what, it's just terrible what they're it, going it is absolutely right appalling and a, and a country that suffers in a sense so much having its golden era millennia ago. I know, right? It's sort of one of those things where it's like... Deeply frustrating. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a lot of homage that's paid to the Greek traditions and all that stuff, but, you know, how do you move forward now? Yeah. How do you, you know... Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you get this idea. What makes you decide that a trilogy... I think in Greece. I watched Star Wars one too many times when I was a little kid, I think. No, I'm dead serious. I think of stories as a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I... I, I, Even Godard thinks that. But (laughs) presumably your parents must have been Catholic. 
Yes. So it's got to be the Trinity, doesn't it? Well, there. I guess I've always thought in threes. I always think of Lucas instead of Jesus. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe that's my. That's that's where my my interest lies. I no, I definitely think of stories in that beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. I think of them in that, you know. Uh, Indiana Jones had three movies. I grew up watching Indiana Jones. I grew up watching Star Wars. And so when I think about um, big epic characters, mm, mm. like a big epic story, I don't think of sequels. I think of each contained part of a story. Um, and it, they, all of them link up together. And in my books, there's a very short amount of time um, from the beginning of the first book to the end of the third book. There's only about two months mm. that passes for the characters. and. Um, I, t I think of the whole story like I know the feel of each book. I've actually started outlining a another trilogy, and it's weird. I really do think in threes. I can see the first book feels like this. I can see the second book feels like this. I can see that the third book, and I know how that's gonna. I know how it's gonna end. So, I, I don't know why I. I don't know why I'm like that. It's just. In terms of the the third book in this trilogy, uh -huh. uh, is that underway? Oh, it's finished. It's done. Yeah, Goddess is done. Yeah. So, when will that that will come out next year or the year after? What's 2013. It comes out 2013. in. They're pushing in Germany. They they wanted an earlier earlier release date, so they're pushing for March. Um, the U.S. It's still going to be end of May. They like to release it as a summer book. Um, and the U.K. the same thing. It's um, June, July, summertime. So. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And did you? Uh, again, please don't say any more about this than, than you wish. Did you sell it as a trilogy? I did. I mean, because I imagine it wouldn't make much sense otherwise. No, not at all. I wrote the first book, and the thing is, is that it's, I had no idea what I was getting into. I really didn't. I didn't know that it, it's harder to sell three books as opposed to one. I was like, heck, you know, if I'm, gonna, if I'm just going to, I'm just going to write this, the story that I want to read. I'm going to write it the way that I think it should be written and we'll see what happens from there. I mean, I had lots of people that were like, that was a really ballsy move to try and sell three books at once, but I never even thought about it. It was just sort of... You think in threes? I think in threes, I really <laughs> do. Well, for storytelling, for stories. Sure, no, and it was completely logical in terms of this project. So, had you published before this? No, never. So, you, you were a first-time yeah. writer, <laughs> and, and, and they did buy it. Yes, and, uh, a preemptive buy actually. So it was one of those. Um, they only sh my manager and my agent only showed it to one publisher, oh. and they bought the trilogy immediately. Fantastic. Yes. I, and that I, it showed a lot of faith in me, which yeah. I thought was really incredible of Harper Teen and, and of my manager, and my agent. Nobody tried to talk me out of it. Nobody tried to you know make my vision more oh look, why don't we make it four books so we can make more money it was this is what she wants to do and so let's do it that way yeah now and, and uh, in fact interestingly enough somebody quite a while ago that I did a podcast with wrote a Harper team um, fantasy Which fiction one? novel her name is Louise Katz K -A -T -Z. oh yeah 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 well, uh, my uh, parent, my my father was Australian. I lived quite a number of years in Australia, and she and I uh, were neighbours. Uh -huh. And then we didn't see one another for twenty years, thirty years, or yeah. something. Anyway. But uh, so, tell us a bit about your readership. Mm -hmm. On your website, you say a little bit about what you know your interaction with people. You make it obvious you encourage them to connect with you. Oh yeah. You apologise when you can't write back straight away, and all the rest of it. You seem to want to have a special relationship with them. What kinds of people are you, do you hear from? All kinds. Well, from all over the world, first of all. Um, it's, um, it really is you know, kind of overwhelming to think that there's somebody in Taiwan reading my book right now. And there's somebody, you know, it's just fantastic. It really, it really is a moving experience to know that. Um, but mostly it's women, either teenagers or women in their 30s, 40s, 50s. I mean, I've, you name it. It's cross-age for Yeah, women. it really is. Yeah. There's a, a lot of women that are mothers that have teen daughters of their own, and they share the book with each other, which I think is fantastic. Like, I love hearing how the mother looks at it, how the daughter looks at it. Um, there are some guys that do read the book, <laughs> but it's, it's the vast majority are women. And uh, I, I really do enjoy interacting with them because there's something about teen books that is intensely personal for people and it 
really connects emotionally. I know that in like the literary world, uh, books that are written for teens are sort of, you know, people look down on them a little bit. They laugh at them. It's like, oh, that's pop, fluff, and but not to the readers. They connect to it oh, in a way God. that is just so passionate, and it's just it really changes their lives. They read a book, and it changes their lives. And to be a, of course, I want to interact with them because I know what that's like. I've read books that changed my life when I was a teenager, and I want to be able to be there for them so that they can share it with somebody, you know? It's, it, it can be a huge experience for a teen girl. I remember about 10 or 11 years ago sitting, waiting for one of those huge buses that take you across Mexico on the autopistas, mm. and there are four or five classes of bus, you can spend a certain amount of money and you'll get a better ride, right? And there was an entire family of about seven people all reading their own copy of the first Harry Potter. Oh, wow. Dad, mom, children. Everybody had their own copy. They're all reading it absolutely voraciously. Yeah. And they were getting on the working class bus that had no mod cons or facilities. Yeah. And there they were. And it meant so much to them as a family. You could see it. Everybody had to have their own copy. Right. No, but to read it together and to share it. My mom and I read the Harry Potter books together. My mom and I read Lord of the Rings together. You know, and it's like being able to share these books. I took my niece when she was still a young teenager. Wow, maybe she was like 11. I took her to see the first Lord of the Rings. And then I would fly home every year Lord of the Rings came out to take my niece to Aww. see the next one. Because it becomes like a, a shared experience. Stories are shared experiences. And social media, having a Facebook page and having a website where the teens can come and interact with you, interact with each other, it really, it makes you feel like there's a community. Mm. It's wonderful. Mm. It really is wonderful because you can be from any country and you can, Connect. you can, yeah. Do you think yourself back into teen girldom at all when writing? No, I just think about writing a story. And the funny thing is, is I do use people like Mr. Hergesheimer in my book. I had a Mr. Hergesheimer. Yeah, he was my English teacher and I adored him. Like, I thought he was hilarious. A lot of people thought he was kind of crazy, but I thought he was just like a really special guy. Um, so I, I use people from my past yeah. and I use names that mean something to me that are people that I care about so that I can sort of get an idea of a character. Uh, like Jerry, the Helen's father. My brother's name is Jerry. So I wanted to show that warmth and that bond by setting right. that up. Right, right, right. So you draw on your own experiences and mercilessly. Own I steal right. from my family. I steal from my friends. But all you the don't time. think I'm 13 again? No. Because you're writing as a professional adult woman. Well, the thing is, I, I think you can't pretend to be 13 again. You can just think about a character. And we make choices. I, I mean, I remember what it was like to be insecure, like Helen was at the beginning of the book. She goes through a huge character arc. She starts off really insecure, really not knowing who she is, where she fits into the world. And then, you know, she ends up a very strong woman. Um, but I remember what it was like to be 17 and be like, ugh, slouching so that I wasn't as tall as some of my friends and, you know, trying to make myself disappear because I felt like I stood out too much and I did stand out a lot, so... It was one of those things where I was trying to hide myself a lot. But that's part of my personality, period. Mm. It's not like I'm trying to, what did that feel like when I was 13? Mm. I just know what it felt. I know what it feels like. People know what it feels like to, you know, slouch so that nobody looks at you, whether you're 13, 17, or 37. You see it on the bus. I caught the bus over here from downtown where I live. And people are constantly trying to be invisible. Yeah all the time. And it's weird because they're trying to be invisible but they want someone to notice them. <laughs> well, when you're a teenager I think definitely. And of course in bars and oh, for sure. dances and all kinds of things. For sure. Yes, yes. Of course there's a duality to it. I think often on the bus people really want to be invisible. Yeah. <laughs> but in, in, in much of life there's an oscillation that's complicated between exposure and obscurity. Exactly. Through. So I wanted to uh, turn back for a moment, if I could, Josie, onto something you said earlier about there being a certain disdain for teen fiction yeah. uh, and for, I guess, popular culture in general. Could you talk a bit more about that? Well, I, I, I've noticed that the people who love it and appreciate it, love it. Um, but the people who, there are some, it's not taken as, like, 
heavy literature. Like people don't see it as real literature. They just sort of see it as, oh well, you know, it's it's popular. That means it's not very good, <laughs> or it's not written for adults. Therefore, we can't take it seriously. Right. And there is there is a lot of that snobbery in the literary world. It's like, well, okay, so it doesn't mean something to you. This doesn't ring true for you, but it rings true for this teen girl over here and that teen girl. I don't really, I don't try to judge it too much. I've always read everything, like middle grade. I, you know, I devoured Harry Potter. I love The Golden Compass. I love, you know, there are all these books that I really gravitate to. Um, Isabella Lende's amazing middle grade series. It's all about Yeti over here. You know what I mean? It's, she's got some great books. And I've never really judged um, based on age range, but there are people that do. Sure. Well, and of course, it's, it's interesting, I think, particularly in the context of the United States, where many people would argue that amongst our best writers, stylistically, are Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. Well, I mean, they were writing in comic book magazine forms, right. essentially, weren't they? Right. <laughs> uh, and yet, they taught alongside Fitzgerald or Melville. Right. There's a little bit of easing off, but right now there's, um, there's, there's, uh, teen books get attacked right now. There's a lot of teen books that have been attacked by people because the market is really flooded with a lot of stuff that's aimed at teen girls because all of a sudden the world woke up and said, hey, they actually read and they go to see movies and maybe we should be, you know, pitching some entertainment there in their direction. Boys don't read anymore. <laughs> girls read voraciously, they do. we're told. They do. In this country. Uh -huh. So, you know, now they've finally caught on and there's this feeling like, oh, it's drivel because it's a love story or it's drivel because it's, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the problem is. Well, part of it is, I think, is. the traditional critique of melodrama uh, that you see going back centuries mm -hmm. always being delegitimized with reference to realism. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this really being about a very gendered notion authorship, taste, culture, civilization. Yeah. But I think something in what you said is also important. You used the expression flood of the market. And I think that's true. That when you get a genre that is massively successful, you see it a lot in US television and cinema as well as literature. Yeah. As a consequence of that, it draws a lot of investment by people, whether they're writers or agents or studios or right. publishers. And of course, sometimes the quality is not quite as great because everyone's trying to do another Friends oh, for sure. or whatever it is, and they do too many episodes or too many novels or they sign on too many people, and it just isn't as good. Right. You know, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, in terms of TV, HBO and Showtime have been so successful. They don't have to produce, you know, thirty weeks a year. Right. They're not trying to. So of course, it's better written because right. they're having to do six or nine like in the old days the BBC did, instead of having to do 45,000 of these now. Right, for sure. And I totally understand that. And I know that a, a lot of stuff is getting put out into the market before it's ready or, you know, that m wouldn't have made it into the market years and years ago. Maybe my book is even one of them. But when you have, a, when you have people that are, they headhunt a little bit. It's a teen book, I'm going to go get it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it stinks without even having read it. There on Goodreads, there were reviews of my book, and it's not even out yet. There were reviews of my book out before there were even the advanced readers' copies. There were reviews of Goddess before I'd even finished it, which is impossible. You don't know that Albert actually sells advanced copies to people? Oh, no. You didn't realize that? No, right, right. He's out there, yeah. <laughs> even before I'm done writing it, he's out there selling it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there, there are people that just, they're just out to get wow. you. They don't care if your book is good or bad. They just see a teen book and they want to kill it. It's true. That's a whole, I, I almost, I'm, I knew that there, would, that, that there was snobbery about different genres of writing. Mm -hmm. I, I'm very alert to that. I didn't know it was so intense in this field oh yeah and i didn't know these things have been done to you and that's awful i guess that's the other side of social media too right where the openness that permits people's views to be expressed in somewhere like goodreads can actually be too much do you know i was just talking about this with jay asher he's a, a ya author and he wrote 13 reasons why and his entire book is about a girl who's committed suicide and she sends out these tapes and it's sort of explaining why. And there's uh -huh. a lot of bullying in the book. Uh -huh. And 
we were, he and I were having this conversation. It was like, you know, people think it's anonymous, but it's still bullying. It's still bullying. And they think that their, their opinion, they can say anything they want, no matter how evil it is, without even having read a book. And they don't realize that what it is is bullying. And there's, in social media, there's a great opportunity to connect with fans. There's also uh, the huge pitfall of people just coming after you to come after you. Yeah. So I stay away from it. I don't read reviews. I don't. I really don't. Um, I, my agents tell me how something, they'll say, oh, it's trending well, or it's, you know, that's it. I, I don't read them personally. I don't go through them. It's not for me. And that the people who write to you, contact you via your website, mm -hmm. um, if they say something critical, do you respond to that? I mean, does anybody contact you who's been nasty? Um, no, because mostly fat, really. Fans. No, because the thing is, is that when you contact me on my face, you yeah. have to declare who you are. You have to be a follower. I, I, there's a little picture of you. People are oh, less. They they don't bully. They don't bully if you can say, oh, here's your name. I know who you are, and but. You know, if there's an anonymous right, site somewhere, right, right. they can say whatever they want. So no, I never, nobody ever comes to my site to be mean to me in any way. I, it's all been very positive. That's good. And in terms of reviews, uh, you were saying you, you don't look at them. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't read them, uh, but I do know how many stars I have here. You know, it's like, God, um, not Goddess, what is it? Dreamless is actually, is reviewing very well. So I've been very fortunate. Yeah, better than the first one. And you always hope your books get better and better. Are there places that are important as far as, say, your agent or publisher is concerned to get reviewed in terms no. of where bookstores make purchases from or where parents might think of looking or whatever? Is Not for the teen market. The funny thing is, is that reviews, you know, they, they matter so much for, you know, literature, strictly adult work. But teenagers don't read reviews. No. They don't care. They, if they see a book and their friend said, read this, it's good, they'll read it because their friend said it. Word is more important. Yeah. Or they'll just read the back of the book and they'll say, oh, this is something I want to read. And I don't care what anybody else thinks about it. Teenagers think for themselves. Mm. They don't listen to some stupid review somewhere. Like, they don't care. <laughs> it's like, they see it, they say, oh, it's about Greek stuff. I like Greek stuff. Oh, it's got a love story. I love love stories. Oh, this actually looks really cool. I'm going to read it. And they do. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the reviews. Right. They're not important. No. So, and I guess Harper Teen as a brand is going to be quite successful at drawing teens in. Yeah, they do very well. They've got, um, they have a website called Epic Reads where, you know, it's sort of like a fan site and they promote their books. Uh, Harper, Harper Teen is huge. They're, it's just like a a huge machine. I don't get in the way. I just <laughs> stand back. And I stand them. back, and yeah, it's a it's a very large monster that I've learned not to. Like, they're over there. I'm over here. I write my books. Like. Sure. <laughs> I just had a couple more questions, if I could. If that's sure. okay, it won't take very much longer. Thanks for giving up your time. But my my next question was to ask you about what you see happening for you in the future. I mean, I know it'll be in three, but <laughs> you've got this next trilogy that you're yeah. already planning. Yeah, I've already started working on it. Yeah, I've been writing the first book. I outlined the trilogy um, in March, yeah. and I've been writing the first book ever since then. Wow. So, Because after, in March I finished Goddess completely. I finished all the, yeah. re the rewrites. So, right. so you, And you've got a very clear model the way you work is to say, uh, here's the plan, rather than simply write and let Oh, I don't out. wing it. I don't wing it. I'm, I outline everything. The story has to work, the character arcs have to work, or it's not a well-told story, in my opinion. There are some people that can sit down and just wing it and follow a character through, and that will tell them the plot, but not for me. I, I really, I structure my stories pretty intricately. So. And Rewriting? Do you do a lot of editing of your own work? I do all the editing. <laughs> yeah, I edit as I go, and then obviously my editor gives me notes yeah. when it's finished. All that stuff. But Is rewriting important for you? Yeah, it's. I think it's important for any writer. Um, 
it's not that the story changes so much in my books ever. Like the story is always because I, I know it's going to work before I start writing. So the story there's never really any holes. Um, but for me, um, the character development, dialogue, um, my prose always need work. <laughs> my prose can always get better, and I try to make it better every single time. But rewriting is where you really learn how to write. It's where you learn how to say this scene doesn't need to be here. That's how it goes. Or I need this scene here. Rearranging stuff, really finding how the bones of a story work. That's quite a lesson for some of your teen readers. Yeah, because rewriting's the hardest. Because first you have to get criticism. And there's always that moment where you go, wait, it wasn't perfect the first time, but it's nothing ever is. No. And it's a process of perfection. You know, every single rewrite you do will make your book better. Every single book you write, you become a better writer. It's just writers write, and the only way to get better is to keep doing it. And my last question is sort of a big one, and it's maybe amorphous, so maybe we need to break it down into little ones. Uh -huh. uh, may even be unanswerable. <laughs> well, I'll try anyway. Okay. <laughs> I, I wanted to know what you see as the future of the book. Uh, by which I mean... Oh, like e-books or whether they'll be printed or... Partly that, but mm -hmm. also the future of literature. Because we started out really with your talking about the need to show people why it's still important to read. Uh, and why they have such power of imagination to use. So I guess I'm interested, and then we went through thinking about how some genres are damned and others are admired by critical establishment. So I wondered if you could just say a little bit about, yes, definitely the future of the physical material entity, the object. I mean, Harper's now sells some books uh, through uh, game platforms, right. for example. Right. Uh, and then there's self-publishing too. And there's self-publishing. We've seen some spectacular successes on right. Amazon recently. iPhones now have more apps for books than for games. Right. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. But I'd also love to hear your thoughts about the wider question, if you like, the non-technological question of you know, what literature can do for us. I think people will always read. I think it's... And I love movies, don't get me wrong. But there is something different and satisfying about reading a book that is a completely different experience from playing a video game or watching a movie. I think all of these art forms exist next to each other mm -hmm. and they'll always continue. I think that people will always want an actual physical book. I know this sounds crazy, but um, ebooks are super easy. I love my Kindle. I travel with it so I can read. It's great. I think ebooks are going to revolutionize the way that we read because mm -hmm. you can get them chapter at a time. And uh, if you don't like it, you don't buy the whole book. So it's sort of like those first chapters are going to become really, really important in Steve, books. Stephen King did one yeah. or two like that, yes. didn't he? And yes. I think that that'll keep going. Um, but I think that there are going to be people that are just, they want a book. They want to hold it. You can take it to bed with you. You know what I mean? There's something about actually holding Very a Very stable technology, yeah. unless you're in the bath. Yeah. <laughs> then there's a problem. No, but that even still works better. Actually, I'm getting the sun on yeah. me right here. That works better than uh, an ebook. Um, and uh, what I think about the future for, I think that, you know, styles change, markets change. Um, right now, YA books are, you know, people have sort of discovered them and hopefully that will stay, um, you know, hopefully for my sake, yeah. <laughs> that'll stay a viable genre for a while. But I, I, I see it only branching and diversifying more and more. Yeah. You know, yeah. As yeah. people more and more people in the world, more and more thoughts, ideas floating around out there. More and more literacy. Yeah. I mean, people say it's the, the death of journalism nowadays, and obviously it's very difficult compared to the past to be a journalist in, say, the United States or many other wealthy countries, but journalism is expanding, going gangbusters uh, in many parts of the world where there is suddenly a sizable middle class and a sizable number of people who are literate right. and numerate and who are hungry for this information. And it, everything goes in cycles. I really believe mm. that. You know, mm. it'll, the journalism will, even though right now it's some, sort of like infotainment, mm. we'll come back to true journalism in this country. There's just something about people wanting to know the truth that I think is always going to be out there. People are always going to go looking for I hope it. you're right. Well, that, that leads me I to hope one, I'm right, too. That leads me to one... <laughs> Maybe I'm just optimistic. One last question. I'm, I know I said I had the last, but you've just stimulated <laughs> me into asking you one further thing. And that is the question of the relationship between the real world, as it were, 
and the stories you're telling. Right. Uh, because hung around the fabric of a very powerful mythical tale that's done service for thousands of years, you're trying to get at, as I understand it, as an outsider to the discourse, some very true, very powerful verities for young women. Yeah? Yeah. So what do you want them to do with the stories? Just think about it. Really, the first thing that they are, is uh, the first thing that my books are, are entertainment. Entertainment. The, the second thing that they are is, hey, wait a minute, maybe this is the type of relationship I would rather be in as opposed to this one. Maybe it's not such a good idea to think of myself like this. Maybe it's better to think of myself like that. Just think about it. That's it. That's all. I, that's all I'm asking. And if you don't want to think about, you know, feminist issues or anything like that, don't. Just read the story. Just put yourself <laughs> into the story. Exactly. And mm. it, you know, science fiction, fantasy, it comes and it goes in cycles. You know, um, back when the Greeks were writing stories, everything had a monster in it. Beowulf was about a monster. These are all supernatural stories. And for a long time, realism was the only form of storytelling that anybody thought was worth anything. You know, even though Hamlet has a ghost in it, and Macbeth has witches, and you know, monsters, magic, that is some of the best storytelling that has ever happened in the world. Um, and then everybody reviled it and said that fantasy was a, a lesser form of, of literature. Mm. And you know, now it's coming back around again. People are starting to say, no, actually, myth making is a pretty important world building. New world building is a pretty important form of storytelling. And you know, the greats like Arthur C. Clarke and all of them, they're finally getting their just desserts. Like, no, these were actually great thinkers. They weren't just telling silly little tales about robots. These were great thinkers. Everything comes in cycles. Mm -hmm. And I think that right now, the, with the advent of, you know, the supernatural romance being a new genre for people to read mm -hmm. and dystopian being a new genre, it's, it really isn't. It's still science fiction and fantasy. It's just put into pop culture in a different way and um, it's going to get spanked for a little bit people are going to not like it and say it's a lesser form of storytelling and then maybe in a few years they'll start to respect it we'll see well Josie thank you so much uh, I'm going to ask you if you might uh, perhaps when the third volume in the trilogy comes out return to the pod I would possible. love to Toby and that would be great tell us about that and Anne also give us the scoop by that stage on the next trilogy award of course i would be i would be so happy to join you again thank you so much thank you